Hello, everyone. Welcome. I am very excited to welcome you to today's discussion about the key opinions and takeaways from this year's Supreme Court term. Uh, my name is Laura Safdie, and for the next hour, we'll be speaking with two uh, giants in Supreme Court litigation. I do want to give us um, maybe 10 or 15 more seconds to let other folks join um, because we are just a minute past our start time. So if you could just hold with us for a few more seconds. Um, I'll give you just a little bit of background here. Um, because we're going to have nearly a thousand people on the line, we can't have two-way audio. So um, I'll ask that you tweet any questions to that you want us to ask Tom and Sarah to at KSEX. You can see it on the screen here. Um, if you're not familiar with Twitter, you just start your tweet with at KSEX does one word. Um, and we will try to answer as many questions as we can during the hour. Um, and those that we can't get to, we'll do our best to cover depending on how many. Uh, we'll do our best to cover some answers uh, on Twitter afterwards. Um, we'll also try to follow up with some of those answers after the fact by email, but in any event, um, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Um, let me give a few more minutes for folks to join. The numbers are climbing now. Um, and in that time, I'm going to introduce Tom uh, and Sarah, uh, though I'm sure most of you are very familiar with their work. Tom Goldstein has served as counsel to a party in well over 100 merits cases at the court and has been counsel on more successful petitions for cert over the past decade than any lawyer in private practice. Tom is also, of course, the founder and publisher of SCOTUS Blog, which we appreciate uh, for their incredibly valuable commentary um, and analysis on the Supreme Court. Sarah Harrington is also joining us. She's argued 20 cases in the Supreme Court and has served as counsel in dozens of others, uh, handling a wide range of topics before the court, including bankruptcy, constitutional law, criminal law, tax, preemption, trademark, civil procedure, environmental law, and federal statutory questions. Um, they are both instructors in the Supreme Court Litigation Clinic at Harvard Law School. And I will say that both of them make me, and I'm sure many other lawyers, feel a little bit introspective about one's own contributions to uh, the legal community. So I am going to turn things over to Tom and Sarah, and please join me in welcoming them today. Hey, thanks everybody and so much uh, for taking the time and also uh, to Case Text for putting this together and for its work with the blog. It's been really incredible to get to use the product and learn more about it and they've been incredibly supportive and are really interested in getting information out to the public uh, as inexpensively as possible. Uh, it's been really a joy. Uh, so we are going to try and uh, pick up the highlights of the term and divided up the cases and really are enthusiastic about getting the questions. So to use our suggestion of uh, tweeting to add case text and we'll try and curate those and figure out what uh, people are most interested in. And I think I get to start. Take it away. All right, so the first things that we were gonna talk about are partisan gerrymandering. This is the body of cases that has me most depressed in my entire professional career. Um, but it's, so it's a huge deal. Uh, for decades, the Supreme Court has at least suggested that there would be constitutional limits on the amount of partisan gerrymandering, which is, of course, the idea that state legislatures draw district lines, and those are the district lines for state houses and for federal congressional districts. 
And so we have this term, two cases, one from North Carolina, one from Maryland, about this question of when is partisan gerrymandering excessive? And you see the Rucho case, which is the one of the two, uh, and it was the, the Lee case, the, the opinion was uh, written under that title, but it, the Supreme Court ended up deciding the two cases on a consolidated basis. And the, um, the Supreme Court had for a long time, as I started to say, held open the possibility that there would be a constitutional problem with going too far in partisan gerrymandering. It had done that several decades ago, and then in a kind of four to one to four decision, uh, Justice Kennedy provided the fifth vote for saying, well, I would recognize a partisan gerrymandering claim uh, potentially, but I can't quite figure out what the rule is, go back and think about this. And last term in Justice Kennedy's last, what turned out to be his last term on the court, the Supreme Court had granted two more partisan gerrymandering cases to review. We all thought this was going to be the time that Justice Kennedy finally told us on behalf of a majority what the rule was and how much partisan gerrymandering was too much and how it is that we would de define uh, unconstitutional partisan gerrymandering. And that was an issue that he seemed to care a lot about. And then at the end of the term, the cases turned into duds. The court got rid of them on technicalities. And so it ended up saying uh, essentially nothing about partisan gerrymandering last term. And then uh, he retired. Uh, and uh, we were left with no answer at all and the question of, okay, what will Justice Kennedy's re replacement, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, have to say about this? And we did not have to wait long because this term, the court took up the, the two cases, uh, Rucho and Lamone, uh, from North Carolina and Maryland, respectively, on uh, exactly this question. And the lower courts here, had confronted pretty extreme partisan gerrymanders. Uh, it's the, the case that in North Carolina, nine of 13 seats uh, at one point in the North Carolina's uh, US House delegation were held by Republicans, but it had less than, they had less than 50% of the statewide vote. And then Maryland, which is where I live and where our offices are, the reverse phenomenon, seven out of eight of the seats were held by Democrats, even though Democrats had about two thirds of the vote. Uh, and you can see how this happens and how it is that it happens with increasing increasing frequency, frequency as we get better and better computers. Because what happens is that we know more and more and more about uh, populations down to like who lives in what house and what political party they're affiliated with. And uh, line drawing uh, software for districts allows uh, the creation of uh, lines that curve around and pick up the right number of Democrats and exclude the right number of Republicans or the reverse. And you get a situation in which districts are built to be Republican districts and Democratic districts, and uh, they almost inevitably are. Now populations can change, there can be surprises, you can have great candidates, so nothing is a sure bet, but it's pretty, pretty darn sure. And legislatures have gotten very sophisticated about making sure that they design districts so that they continue to win. Uh, you know, if it's a democratically controlled state house, then it really wants to make sure that Democratic candidates are elected uh, to the U.S. Congress and also into the state legislature. Um, and uh, this is a terrible, terrible problem as a practical matter, at least in my opinion, uh, for lots of reasons, none of which are very surprising. And that is, um, there's the basic democratic idea that we should pick our legislators, not the other way around. But in terms of what the Supreme Court does, 
generally speaking, if the Supreme Court doesn't tackle a problem, it's because they believe that the problem will be fixed in the political process, and there's a realistic prospect to that. But this is like a foundational thing that is broken in the political process and prevents things from being fixed, because you can't change the legislatures, you can't kick the jerks out if they've selected you effectively as the uh, to uh, they'll be your representative. In addition, it has a really kind of distortive effect on the nature of our politics, because what happens is if you know this is going to be a Republican district, then the election is actually held in the primary and primary voters are, you know, the most extreme voters of they're the base of both of the political parties. So Democratic districts get quite liberal representatives, uh, uh, Republican districts get very conservative uh, representatives. And when they get to Congress, they do not work together. You know, we lose a lot of centrism as a result. And so there's a lot of just uh, lockup, policy lockup, where you can't get anything done in the Congress. And I think it's at the root of a, a variety of problems. But this does raise a very important question between liberals and conservatives in ju judicial philosophy. And while it is the case that, uh, as you all will know, that five members of the Supreme Court who are the most conservative members said that we will not decide partisan gerrymandering claims anymore. I don't really think that this is just an attempt to ensconce Republican majorities by any means. As I said, Democrats do this, Republicans do it. Republicans have been better at it and more aggressive about it, but it's a, it's, it's a problem on both sides and something wrong with done by both sides. But the, the more conservative judicial philosophy is that we, as judges, do not belong in this very political mix. And this is just not the province of the judiciary. And this is a problem to be solved by uh, the legislatures themselves and by the people, although recognizing the difficulty of that happening once the legislators have already uh, got themselves locked into power. Uh, but uh, the conservative view held out in this term, uh, whereas the court had held out the prospect that it would uh, recognized these claims, said that they essentially they never would in a very, very, very stark five to four decision uh, with Justice uh, Kagan writing for the more liberal justices, uh, the court forever until this decision, these decisions are overruled at least, uh, closed the door on this kind of claim. Now you can say, well, that means that partisan gerrymandering will kind of continue the way it has. Uh, I tend to think that it's gonna be much worse than that for a couple of reasons. The first is technology is always getting better. Data is getting better. Our sophistication at being able to draw these lines is getting greater. Uh, but also when the Supreme Court says, as Justice Kennedy was wont to do and Justice O'Connor before him, we might recognize such a claim, then there is an overhang, again, uh, with respect to state legislators, where they have to worry that they're doing something that will be deemed unconstitutional. It kind of puts a break. Uh, they don't want to do something that is you know, going to be resoundingly declared unlawful. But now the breaks are off at least when it comes to the federal courts, and they don't have to worry about being sued in federal court on a federal constitutional claim. <clears throat> now, the majority does say there are other options, there are other places to go, and it identifies, first and foremost, state courts. Now, the weird thing, as Justice Kagan pointed out in her dissent, is that it's very hard for the majority in this case to say, look, uh, there are no, this is what they, the ruling is, there are no judicially administrable standards where we can figure out how much partisan gerrymandering is too much partisan gerrymandering because it's an inevitably political process. Go to the state courts and Justice Kagan says, well, I don't understand. What do the state courts know that the federal courts don't? Uh, how is it that they have an administrable standard and we don't? Uh, and the second thing that the uh, court does is to say, well, in addition to the state courts and state law, there are a variety of panels and nonpartisan uh, means for dealing with districting that are coming out and are becoming more popular. For example, there's a, 
a California system that's had some success. Uh, and you can use those other mechanisms. So the, the majority, Supreme Court majority certainly doesn't want to say, you know, nobody is going to be able to do anything about partisan gerrymandering. It wants there to be other avenues, but it wants the federal courts entirely out of this business. Because I think it'll significantly encourage partisan gerrymandering, because I think it'll cause the parties to lock up, as I've said, I think this is the most significant Supreme Court decision in decades, be precisely because it can't be fixed in some other way. I think it's more important than Bush versus Gore and you know, any decision in my professional uh, lifetime. Uh, and so I, you know, uh, really regret that the court decided this way, understanding that there are difficulties in figuring out what the precise rules should be. But it is an unqualified uh, decision, and it's one that conservatives have really uh, looked for for a long time to get the federal courts out of this business. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about the decision hand down yesterday was that Justice Kagan, who wrote the dissent, she read her dissent or parts of it from the bench, which is unusual. And uh, people who were there noted that she had a lot of emotion in her voice. And it just reminds us that these are people who are making these decisions and they feel strongly about these things just like we do. Yep, absolutely. Should we? Oh, well, let's just see, see if there are questions about the gerrymandering case. Yeah. Um... I mean, your statement that it's the most impactful decision in your professional lifetime really, really drives this issue home, I think. Um, and so I guess I'm wondering, you know, how far do you think this can go? And if the court is saying that they don't have the tools to evaluate what level of representation would be fair, how is the conclusion not that the underlying system is unconstitutional? Well, I think they would, if you know, to give the conservatives their due and to give the chief justice, the author, his due, he would say, you know, the system is what it is. We're just not here to police it. The the thing that fails is the role of the judiciary here. Um, you know, the there are things the the courts aren't intended to exist to solve every kind of problem. Uh, and Justice Kagan's response to that is, look, if you are ever going to step away from something and to say the judiciary can't solve something this is like the worst possible uh, circumstance to do it. And, you know, I think the left to give it its due would say that, you know, this is a really, really weird uh, kind of take on things. The conservatives do aggressively strike down other things in politics, for example, regulations of campaign finance spending, Citizens United, for example. Uh, and so it's not that there is one guiding principle that the Supreme Court and the federal court should be outside of politics. But this is, you know, this is a particularly fraught issue, um, and it is one that there are extremely hard line-drawing problems. The question is whether they are hard enough that you would completely abandon the field, and the Supreme Court has decided to do that. Yes, they did. Okay, why don't we save time by moving on to the, the next case? Great. So I'm going to talk about um, what's known as the census case. It's called Department of Commerce versus New York. This is about the very well-known enumeration clause in the Constitution. Um, haven't heard of it? That's because it's only relevant once a decade. Uh, this is the clause that directs Congress to um, conduct an actual enumeration of the American population um, once every 10 years. Congress has delegated that authority to the Department of Commerce and the Census Bureau. Uh, so the question, the issue here is, um, Secretary Wilbur Ross, Secretary of Commerce, he decided in 2018 to add a question to the questionnaire that goes out to U.S. households um, asking about the citizenship of people who live in the household. Um, now, this is a question that has been included in some form or another on some census questionnaires throughout history, but for the last 70 years, it has not been included on the main 
questionnaire that goes out to households because it was determined in, by the Census Bureau that including the question results in a significant undercount of households that include people who are um, not citizens and also households that include Hispanic people even who are citizens. Um, and so the conclusion was that it results in a less accurate count overall and so it was better not to include the question. Well, in 2018, Secretary Ross issued a decision memo ordering the Bureau to add the question back onto the questionnaire. The reason he gave was that he said the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice has asked us to collect this information so that they can better enforce Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. Um, and so that's why we're going to do it. They need to know citizen voting age population and things like that. And so we want this data. Um, well, it turned out that wasn't exactly true. Uh, it came out later, uh, you know, a little bit later, and, and the secretary issued a revised memo um, sort of reflecting this, that in fact, um, Secretary Ross came into the into being secretary with this with the intention of including this question, and that people in the Commerce Department asked the Civil Rights Division, could you said, could you please ask us to include the question? So they solicited the request. Initially, the division said, no, thank you. Commerce went to the Department of Homeland Security and said, hey, do you want this information? Could you ask us to collect it? DHS said, no, nah, we don't really need it. No, thank you. Commerce went back to the Attorney General, to, um, Jeff Sessions was the Attorney General then, and said, hey, we'd really appreciate it if DOJ could ask us to collect this information. And Sessions said, sure, we'll do whatever you need. And so then the request came from the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice to Commerce, please collect this information. And so that was the reason that was given by the Secretary for including the question. Lots of people sued. There was a group of governments led by the state of New York and also a group of um, advocacy groups, uh, including the ACLU. And they had various arguments. The first was that the, including the question violates um, the enumeration clause because it will result in a count that's less accurate. Um, they also had a line of arguments that the inclusion of the question violates the Administrative Procedure Act, which is the act that governs sort of administrative acts by federal agencies. And they said, you know, you're not giving, um, you're ignoring advice from your own bureau, which says that this is not the best way to collect this, to get this kind of information, that it's going to result in a significant undercount of certain populations. Uh, and they also said that it was a violation of the Equal Protection Clause because it was intentionally discriminatory on the basis of race. Um, so one thing that's interesting about this case is there have been, it has been procedurally irregular, um, to say the least. So they filed suit in New York, uh, and the district court there said, well, the, the official administrative record is inadequate, and so we're going to need to supplement the record with additional evidence. Um, and one of the things we're going to want to do is um, depose Secretary Ross and depose John Gore, who was then the head of the Civil Rights Division. And the federal government said, whoa, 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 no, that's not cool with us. We don't do that kind of thing. And they went right to the Supreme Court and said, you need to put a stop to this. And the Supreme Court said, OK, we're going to put a stop to the deposition of Secretary Ross. That's off the table. But the rest of it can go forward. And it did. Um, ultimately, the uh, district court held um, the, said that ruled in favor of the government on the enumeration clause, said it's, it's not a violation of the Constitution, but ruled for the plaintiffs on the APA claims, saying that it, there were some procedural irregularities, um, and then ultimately held that uh, the reason given that the Civil Rights Division wanted the information was pretextual. And so um, the district court said you cannot include this information based on this, excuse me, you cannot include this question based on this justification, and so I'm going to send it back to the agency, back to Commerce, and they can... Um, you know, fix the record and come up with real reasons. Um, well, the Commerce Department said, no, thank you. We're going to take it up right up to the Supreme Court. And normally, as you all know, you have the District Court, the Court of Appeals, and the Supreme Court. So in this case, the government said, well, we're going to skip the Court of Appeals. We're going to do what we call cert before judgment and take the whole thing up to the Supreme Court right away. And the reason we have to do it is because there's this looming deadline of June 30th, 2019, 
just a couple days away from now where we need to finalize the questionnaire. And if we can't get this decided by then, then um, there's nothing we can do. So the Supreme Court said fine, set it for argument. In the meantime, there were some other cases, other challenges to the same thing that um, were being decided. And so the court gradually added some questions. Um, and so it added the constitutional question, which hadn't been taken up and it has the APA question. Uh, so the court hears argument and, um, but most people who listened to the argument or were at the argument thought that it went pretty well for the government and felt like um, people were pretty sure that the government was gonna prevail. Um, then normally you just wait for the decision to come down. But there, as I said, there's all sort of strange procedural machinations in this case. And so one thing that happened was the government, uh, excuse me, the plaintiffs came forward and said, there's this other case going on um, that involves a Republican strategist who has recently just died and his estranged daughter has one of his hard drives and has discovered some information on the hard drive um, that's relevant to our case. And in particular, they found that this strategist has sort of come up with this plan to include the citizenship question several years ago and had written an article about it. And the reason he gave for including it was that it would benefit Republicans and in his words, non-Hispanic whites. Uh, and then the, they said there was also evidence that this strategist had sort of orchestrated the request from DOJ and possibly had even written the first draft of the letter that DOJ sent to Commerce requesting the inclusion of the, question, of the uh, citizenship question on the questionnaire. So that was unusual. And the plaintiffs asked for a remand, a limited remand for more fact finding. They asked for sanctions in the district court. All of this is going on about two or three weeks ago. So right at the, the end of the term. Um, very unusual. Then earlier this week, there was um, there was even more drama. The um, district there was an, a separate suit uh, on the same issue in um, Maryland. It had gone up to the Fourth Circuit, and the Fourth Circuit had said, you know, we think there might be a problem with um, intentional discrimination here. That issue had dropped out of the case that was at the Supreme Court, so it had not been briefed or argued at the Supreme Court. But the Fourth Circuit said we're going to send it back to the district court so that they can do some fact finding um, based on this new evidence um, from the strategists about whether there was in fact intentional discrimination. And it said, and you might just report, you might want to think about enjoining the inclusion of this question before the weekend is up, before uh, the deadline, um, so that uh, the case doesn't moot out. Well, then, you know, that sent everyone sort of scurrying around in the Supreme Court case, and the government ultimately asked the Supreme Court to decide the, the intentional discrimination question, even though it had not been briefed or argued to the court. So lots of drama going on leading up to the decision. So the decision comes down. It's a decision written by the Chief Justice, very fractured opinion. Um, the only parts that garner a unanimous uh, agreement are the parts uh, describing the facts of the case, um, not very controversial, and um, the parts saying that the plaintiffs have standing. Um, so then the, um, the Chief decides that um, there's no violation of the enumeration clause by including the question because there's a long history of doing this. The chief also decides, and he's joined by his conservative colleagues in these parts of the, um, of the decision, he decides that there's no violation of the APA because the alternative um, ways of collecting this kind of information are also not perfect. Um, uh, so in that regard, he overrules the district court's decision. But in the fifth and sort of deciding part of the decision, he's joined by his more liberal colleagues in saying that um, they have to send it back to the agency, the, that the Census Bureau cannot include the question, at least not now, because he decides the reason given by Secretary Ross was pretextual. Um, and he's careful to say, it's fine that he came into office wanting to do this. It's fine that he has a policy reason for doing it. We are not here to step in and second, second guess policy decisions by executives, um, by agency heads in the executive branch. But they have to give a reason that's a real reason. And uh, they don't have to give all the reasons. If one of the reasons they give 
is kind of bunk, it's fine if there are other reasons, but here he gave one reason and one reason only, and that reason is obviously pretextual. And so uh, we really need to send it back. And so the court um, affirmed the remand of the issue back to the agency. And so now we're left with an interesting question. We'll have to see what, what happens over the weekend, basically, um, what happens next. Uh, so he didn't say the, the agency can never include this question. In fact, he said quite clearly they can include the question. He just said they can't do it um, by giving a, a false reason for doing it. Uh, and so um, the question is, do they have time between now and June 30th, which is Sunday, I believe, uh, to come up with a better reason um, and sort of deal with the litigation that's going to immediately ensue? Most people think no. Um, most people are not the president. The president of the United States, in response to the um, decision, has tweeted that he has asked his lawyers whether they can delay the census um, for as long as they need to to come up with another reason that they can get approved by the Supreme Court. Now, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, the government has repeatedly, as I said, told the court that it needs to wrap this up by Sunday, including in the last couple of weeks they've said that. Um, and so it's a real question of um, are they willing to take on sort of a credibility crisis with the court by then saying, well, now we have more time than we think what we thought we did, you know, a week ago, and we're going to sort of take another run at it um, and, and um, see if we can get something that passes muster. Um, I think certainly if they had more time, they could probably come up with a reason that would pass muster. But I think given the time crunch, um, it's going to be a real question whether they can do that. Yes, I think that they're going to try hard. Uh, the I'm not exactly sure why they're so passionate about it, but they are quite passionate about it. The base is passionate about it. There's been a lot of outpouring of conservative anger at the Chief Justice vote in the case. Uh, and, you know, there's a partisan political advantage in it as well. And I think then, therefore, that they will write something along the lines of, we like to ask this question. And uh, it's a perfectly fair question to ask. And we understand the undercount concerns, but we've just decided that the more faithful historical thing to do is to straightforwardly ask people and, and try and minimize the, the circumstances in which people don't um, answer the question. And the reason I think they'll do that is because the Chief Justice has so strongly suggested then they'll win. Uh, you know, just don't be lying liars that lie is the lesson of Section 5 of the opinion. And they can come along and 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 he is also quite clear that they can have multiple reasons. So they don't have to honestly say all the reasons like uh, this happens to work out well for Republicans. Uh, they can give a reason, which is just like we think we should count it and get rid of the, the false reason. Uh, the other thing that will happen, I think, is that by doing that, they can clear out the underbrush from the other case that's still kicking around in Maryland over the equal protection violation, because that case is rooted in the idea that we know why you originally wanted to ask the question. And what I think the administration will do now is to say, here's why we want to ask the question now. And they will then later say to the Supreme Court, whatever was going on back then, we think this is really attenuated and is untrue, this allegation about this guy from North Carolina with the article, but whatever. This is why we want to do it now, and it's sufficient under the Administrative Procedure Act, and cut the knees out from under that equal protection challenge. So my guess is that what the administration will do is announce something very quickly and go forward, and then they may get enjoined in both North Carolina and Maryland, and they will go straight to the Supreme Court. And I bet that the Chief Justice then says, uh, I'm not going to allow there to be an injunction against this. And uh, they will still continue to press the immediate deadline. They have always given themselves this out that says, 
unless we throw you know significant additional resources at it we must do it by the end of june and then they'll i mean so they they can spend the additional resources they can spend the money um if they decide to do it so it, it, i think the my bet is we'll see there are a lot of people who think the question is out but i think in the end that this is going to end up being a kind of a nothing burger victory for the left and ultimately a victory for the right because the chief justice and the conservatives rejected the big claims the permanent claims that you can't do this and instead when just the 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 chief justice and the more liberal justices said what well, they got the most that they could from the chief and that is to say you know just don't lie about it tell the truth it's like you're acting like a two-year-old Right. What is the one thing interesting about this case is the sort of synergy it has with the travel ban case from last year, where um, similarly there was sort of, um, you know, an, an action taken and reasons given that did not appear to be the legal reasons. And then in that case, they had the government had the chance to sort of um, cleanse it and refine it several times before the court actually took up the issue of whether it was valid. But um, I think this time uh, the question was really put to the court more starkly. You know, you can really ignore the truth of what the record is um, and uh, or you can actually, you know, face down that the administration is telling you an untruth. Um, and, you know, it is this administration has been very sort of unorthodox in the way that it talks about the Supreme Court. The president very often invokes the Supreme Court as sort of a home court advantage for the administration. And I think that puts the chief in particular and the court um, more broadly in a hard position of um, really trying to maintain uh, their position as a non-political branch. Right. But it also sounds like what you guys are saying, um, based on Justice Roberts' strong indication that if they come back with a reason that is at least facially not pretextual, the question will be allowed to stand. I mean, with the recently discovered evidence of the true motivations, wouldn't any other justification kind of necessarily be pretextual? Or are you saying that if back then it was pretextual, but there's a new decision of how we feel today, it might not be? Yeah, well, as Tom mentioned that, you know, the chief emphasized that um, you just have to have a valid reason and there can be other reasons that wouldn't pass muster if they were if they were by themselves. And so the chief really emphasized in the opinion, the only reason they gave, they only gave one reason and that reason is cl clearly false, signaling that if, if other reasons had been given in addition, it would have been fine that one of them was pretextual. So it sounds like in the vein of this being a nothing burger, you probably think that Justice Thomas's dissent went potentially way too far. This isn't an unprecedented departure from normal, you know, deference, um, and that this isn't some big, it doesn't put a big question mark on, on the Chevron doctrine, I assume. Let me know well, if, that, if that's wrong. Yeah, I think that, you know, so the Justice Thomas really took the view, and the conservatives take the view, that to to tell someone who is a cabinet secretary and to tell the Solicitor General you're lying, it, which is what this opinion is. That is, you said it was about the Voting Rights Act. That is not true. It is a strong, strong statement. And Justice Thomas's view is that there should be much more deference given to the represent, representations by the executive branch about why it does things and much less looking behind the scenes. I'll say I'm a kind of legal realist about this. I think that you know the more liberal justices are gonna be more accepting of what Democratic administrations say and more conservative justices of what more conservative administrations say, just because it seems more likely to be accurate. But at least with respect to the chief, I really think that Sarah is right, that there may be some growing impatience and recognition by the chief about how the administration is representing things. 
built on, originally on the travel ban. And next, it will be very interesting to see how it plays out with the DACA cases, which were granted today. Because there's another situation where the administration is giving one reason for something that it almost certainly doesn't believe in order to avoid giving the real reason. And so the DACA cases involved the Dreamers, of course, and the protections extended by President Obama. The Trump administration came in and said, we want to get rid of this program because we think it's illegal and the president doesn't have this power, just after having gone to the Supreme Court and explained that the, the president's uh, immigration power is enormously broad and successfully having done that. And the truth of the matter is that the administration just doesn't like DACA. But the president has also promised to protect the dreamers. And so I don't think it wants to be in the position of simply saying, you know, we don't like this policy. You know, we think that the statute should be read otherwise. We should we should be removing these people, the dreamers, from the country. So they gave this uh, reason that kind of threw up their hands and said, we have no choice but to get rid of DACA because uh, it's not authorized by law and, in fact, conflicts with law. Uh, and so they've gone to the three courts. Our decisions are in front of the Supreme Court right now where uh, DACA was in, was upheld and the effort to repeal it was invalidated. And the Supreme Court is just in a very difficult position again. If the administration would simply say in one sentence, all right, we are getting rid of DACA because we don't like DACA. There's no question, you know, at least seven to two, they would win in the Supreme Court. The only reason there's this lawsuit is that there's this crazy uh, debate about whether it was legal to do in the first place. So it's totally irrelevant because the, you can get rid of it anytime you want. If the president can make DACA, another president can get rid of DACA. That's just the way the law works. Uh, and so I'll be interested to see whether the, and, and they held onto the DACA petitions until they decided the census case. And so I think they were thinking about sending the DACA cases back in light of census, but eventually decided to hear them uh, just now. Uh, so I'll be very interested to see what it is the court does and whether the conservatives again just line up behind the administration and say, you know, we're gonna we're gonna follow uh, believe what they say and and um, uh, invalidate DACA. It just is a very mixed up case because the conservatives are the ones who are most inclined to believe that the president has broad immigration authority, uh, and that's what the administration is arguing against here. Right. Um, one one last question, and then we'll let us move on. Just we've gotten like dozens of questions on Twitter relating to like the general issue of if if the secretary's assertion of a sole reason um, was like very, very clear and un uncontroverted, why does that not preclude him from coming back? Which is what Mike Morse asked, Micah Morse asked, and Barbara Emerson asked something similar. Why procedurally does it get a second bite of the apple in this case, but not others? Yeah, so the remedy in this case was that they remand. So the, the, the technical action under review is the secretary's decision memo ordering the Bureau, Census Bureau, to include this question. And so that decision has been vacated. Um, and then what happens in these sort of um, administrative law cases is that the issue is remanded to the agency. There's so another agency gets to come up with a new decision, um, and it can reach the same decision based on different reasoning. And this happens all the time with less controversial agency actions. You know, they will issue a permit for drilling or whatever, and it'll be challenged, and the court will say, well, the reasons you gave for why you think it's not going to hurt the environment aren't sufficient. We're going to send it back. The agency can then issue the same permit and give more robust reasoning, and then it'll be fine. Um, so in, in some ways, it's sort of a uh, bread and butter administrative law case. Um, and so uh, it could come back up. Great. All right, let's move on to the next case. Peace crosses. So the Supreme Court had a religion case this year, and as the court has gotten more conservative, it has not really rushed back into religion, which is 
uh, an issue that I think that conservatives are very interested in the Supreme Court pulling back from the Warren Court era uh, and moving the law to the right. And so the Peace Cross case is here from in Maryland. Uh, it's the Bladensburg Cross uh, on the public right of way in Bladensburg. Uh, there is a 40-foot cross. It's about 100 years old. It was erected originally to honor war dead in World War I, uh, but it is a 40-foot cross, and um, the cross is a religious system, uh, symbol of a particular uh, uh, kind of religion, and uh, it was challenged on the ground that it was the it violated the Constitution's Establishment Clause because it was essentially endorsing one particular view, or at the very least endorsing religion as opposed to people who are atheists. Um, and the lower court uh, struck it down and said that the, the, the state government could not maintain the cross. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed that decision seven to two, and two of the, most not at all surprised, the five conservatives were part of the majority, but also Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer, who have staked out on religion questions kind of a middle ground. And it is a kind of very modest decision. And basically what the Supreme Court said is, look, whatever was true at the very beginning, these monuments that have been around for decades, and this one essentially 100 years, have taken on a social meaning that really does reflect the fact that we are honoring the war dead, and it doesn't have a social meaning uh, as a religious symbol, even though in other contexts crosses are. But you know, we do have these sorts of things, you know, Arlington Cemetery and all the crosses that are on the gravestones. It's a common way of honoring uh, the, the valor of of the people who served the nation. Uh, and this is a broad decision in some sense in that it, the Supreme Court by a pretty broad majority says for all of these old monuments that have this feature and have taken on this additional social meaning, uh, we're just done with these. So there are a lot of challenges to uh, Ten Commandments monuments and to crosses and the like that I think will be cut very, very, very short. But the court isn't uh, makes quite clear that it's not signaling that state and local governments or the federal government can go erecting new uh, crosses, new religious symbols, and simply associating them with secular uh, ideas. Um, and so I think that this is, a, in essence, a kind of compromise, a kind of middle ground. And what the court did do is took a kind of half step back from some of the older doctrine. There's a case called Lemon uh, that had been used in uh, applying the Establishment Clause, and uh, they undercut it some. But a majority of the court wasn't willing to inter it and overrule it completely and get rid of it. Uh, so it'll take some more Establishment Clause uh, litigation to really see how far the, the Supreme Court majority is willing to go. And we got our first opportunity in the cert grant today. Uh, it involves a state program that gives a tax credit for um, uh, tuition. And you can use the tax credit in parochial schools or in other private schools. Uh, and the state courts struck down the program, and the U.S. Supreme Court has agreed to review it, probably signaling the fact that they would uphold the program. So this will be uh, another step to the right that conservatives will be very happy with and reducing the wall, separating the uh, church and state. But it will be very interesting to see if they can get a majority to write a very broad uh, opinion that uh, really encourages programs like this as plainly constitutional, or if they do something that's more fact-bound uh, in saying that, you know, just this precise kind of tax credit is, is constitutional. And I think the decision in the cross case, it fits in with their more recent approach to some of these questions, which is to look at history and sort of like in some way it's sort of legal realism, like to focus on um, 
you know, how has how has the country treated things like this uh, over its history? And so, for example, a few years ago, there was a case called Town of Greece, which was about legislative prayer. And there the court said, look, we've always had legislative prayer in the House and the Senate. And even though, yes, that is obviously a religious act, it's just been a part of our nation. And so we're not going to view it as something that is forbidden by the First Amendment. So as a practical matter, do you see us seeing future cases where there's just a line drawing question about what really constitutes, you know, historical record here versus what is too new to have, um, you know, a presumption in favor that they're constitutional just because it's hard to determine, you know, the purpose of the monument? Sure, there are always line drawing questions in these areas. And at some point, there'll be a question of like something that's 25 years old or something like that. But I do think a majority of these monuments really were enacted much closer to the beginning of the last century. And so the court here is trying to cast a pretty wide net protecting them. So uh, there'll, there'll be cases at the margins, but this is gonna get rid of a lot of this litigation. Someone found it interesting online that um, Justice Ginsburg, Ginsburg's opinions explain the religious meaning of the cross. This is from Tommy's, Tommy Wells. Why do you think she went into that context? Well, she's descending here. And so she and Justice Sotomayor really do believe that this is the message that a 40-foot tall cross uh, that is maintained by the government on a public right-of-way uh, sends to people who are irreligious uh, is, a, is a very, very strong endorsement of religion. And, the, and Justice Ginsburg also comes at this from the perspective that she has, is one of the Jewish justices on the court. And so such a Christian symbol has real uh, significance to her. And so you, she just doesn't because she's not willing to take this purely historical uh, perspective and kind of attach new meaning to it, she wants it to be understood how it is that uh, others who experience it will see it. Uh, and because you know so many people in the country are Christian, they may not really take this the, the significance of something like a big cross uh, in the way that people who belong to other denominations, sex, uh, or our, our atheist uh, really understand it. And so she, she went into quite a bit of detail, uh, and she may even have read uh, from the bench in the dissent in this case as well. Thank you. All right, so we're going to talk about a case called Gamble versus U.S. next. Um, and although it was one of the, potentially one of the biggest cases in the term, it ended up not changing very much. But it's a pretty interesting case about the double jeopardy clause, which is part of the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution that says no one shall be twice put in jeopardy for the same offense. Uh, and that means you can't be tried twice for the same crime. Um, but there is a pretty big exception to the double jeopardy clause, which is called the dual sovereign exception, which provides that you can be tried twice for the same crime if you are tried by two sovereigns, um, which generally means that the state can try you for a crime and then also the federal government can try you for a crime, regardless of how the state trial um, winds up. And it doesn't have to be in that order. It can be either way. Um, so this is an exception that's been recognized by the Supreme Court for about 170 years. Um, and so that might make, make you think, well, why are they hearing a case about this now if, if they've just been saying for 170 years this dual sovereign exception exists? Well, a few years ago, I think it was in 2016, there was a case um, that about the dual sovereign exception that asked whether Puerto Rico and the United States should be viewed as the same sovereign or as separate sovereigns under the exception. And it was held that they should be viewed as the same sovereign. But Justice Ginsburg wrote a dissent in that case, which was joined, I think, by Justice Thomas, um, uh, in which he said, maybe we should just get rid of this thing. Why do we even have the dual sovereign exception? And as you might expect, many, many cert petitions followed asking the court to take up that question. The court thought long and hard about whether to take up the question and which case to take. 
and ultimately granted cert in this case by Mr. Gamble. Um, now the cert grant itself, I think people viewed as a strong signal that the defendants had a leg up, that um, it was an unusual thing for them to agree to hear this kind of issue. Um, and so that suggested that they were seriously thinking about reconsidering it. Uh, people then who listened to or saw the argument thought, mm, actually the government uh, did pretty well. There was a lot of concern, um, first about overruling such long, such a long history of precedent, um, and also about um, issues that could come up. Now, in particular, there was concern expressed by some of the justices about the United States as a country having to adhere to decisions um, from other countries um, in which it might not have full confidence. And so, for example, the justices asked an argument about what if there was a U.S. citizen who was killed in a terror attack overseas, uh, and the country prosecuted the guilty the, you know, the perpetrators, but didn't do a good job and they got away, you know, they got off um, and we didn't have great confidence in the system. We, we would then be stuck with that decision. That doesn't seem like an ideal situation. And so ultimately the government did win uh, in a decision authored by Justice Alito and joined by all except Justice Ginsburg and Justice Gorsuch. Uh, Alito said, look, there's a long history of this. Um, there's reasons to, to keep it. Um, the word offense in the double jeopardy clause, again, no one shall be twice put in jeopardy for the same offense with a C, not an S. Um, uh, they said offense meant an, a, a crime enacted by a sovereign. And so when you have crimes enacted by two different sovereigns, even if they totally overlap, those are two different offenses. Uh, the court didn't agree with the defendant's argument that the, um, the practice around the time of the country's founding was, um, was otherwise. Uh, they said this is consistent with how we've always been doing it. Um, Justice Ginsburg dissented. She said, look, the double jeopardy clause is meant to protect people from government overreach, and this exception does the opposite, and it blows a big hole. Uh, and Justice Gorsuch, he made similar points, but he was much more critical of the majority's take on stare decisis. Um, and this sort of points to a larger theme uh, in the court this term and the terms to come, which is the extent to which different justices want to stick to stare decisis or at least look like they're doing that, um, and the extent to which some others don't feel particularly bound by it. Um, you know, there are big, big precedents like things like Roe v. Wade that people think are going to be coming up again. And so this people have in their mind. Um, you know, how much uh, how much do we care about stare decisis? And I think um, that shows up uh, in, in Justice Gorsuch's, Gorsuch's dissent. Um, another theme, I think we see this term of Justice Gorsuch is, you know, he's a relatively new justice and we really see that he's willing to kind of strike out on his own and be the only car on his road. Uh, and in particular, he has like more, much more of a libertarian streak than some of his um, fellow conservatives. Uh, and that shows that that has shown up in several criminal cases this term where he has sort of joined forces with some of the liberal justices in voting in favor of a defendant um, where he views the government as overreaching prosecutorially. Yeah, I agree. I was actually really struck by Justice Gorsuch's dissent. Um, a quote that really jumped out at me, he said, when governments may unleash all their might in multiple prosecutions against an individual, exhausting themselves only when those who hold the reins of power are content with the result, it is the poor and the weak and the unpopular and controversial who suffer. And I think many people would be surprised to hear him making that connection. Um, what do you think? Does this decision have any implications for advocates for criminal justice reform? Well, you know, there has been an interesting trend in the last few years, maybe the last five to 10 years in the court, where some of the more conservative justices who you would think of as being not pro-criminal defendant have really expressed a skepticism of the federal government in particular of their prosecutorial decisions. And really, this has been true of the chief justice, although he did not join, although he joined the majority in this case, um, where they've really um, shown that they think the government, the federal government is over-prosecuting things. They're charging too many um, things, uh, trying to compel people 
able to enter plea agreements. And so, you know, you see some of that reflected in what Justice Gorsuch says. I'm not sure as a practical matter um, how much that really played out in this context. Uh, there, there are not a whole lot of um, double prosecutions. You know, this I think the, the crime in, uh, issue in this case was um, a gun ownership um, crime, and that's probably a, a relatively unusual context for this to come up. But um, it, you know, it has this came up at the argument and in the briefing. The dual sovereign exception has been pretty critical in prosecuting civil rights cases, where you know you couldn't trust. Um, you know, back in the last century, you couldn't necessarily trust state. Um, courts to get it right in prosecuting um, hate crimes, or even more recently, um, it's harder to trust, um, it's harder to have confidence that state systems are going to prosecute um, police officers and law enforcement officers who are overreaching. And so oftentimes they will try and fail, and then the federal government will come in. That happened in the Rodney King case, for example. So two things. Uh, one, with respect to Justice Gorsuch, he did show this uh, sympathy to criminal defendants in some instances in a couple of five to four decisions as well. There were two cases where the four members of the more liberal uh, wing of the court got Justice Gorsuch to vote for criminal defendants, including in some, a couple of pretty significant cases, actually. And so we see this in a variety of contexts with him. The second is that I always thought that it was impossible to avoid the present day context of the dual sovereign issue. I thought in this case is New York State versus Paul Manafort, because a big implication, uh, assuming that state law allows it, of uh, the dual sovereign inception can be that if you are prosecuted in the federal system and then you are given a pardon, you could be subject to prosecution under state law. And that is happening now. Uh, there is a state law prosecution, of course, of Paul Manafort, and it could happen with other folks who are prosecuted in the federal system and then uh, pardoned by President Trump. And these cases, uh, where the question of the dual sovereign exception could well, if it had been overruled, thrown a real uh, wrench into those prosecutions. So those can now go forward. That um, makes sense. Um, we're in the last 10 minutes. I want to make sure that we get to cover some big picture issues. I feel like we could have this conversation for the rest of the day. Um, but I'm going to maybe take a step back and ask, you know, looking at the whole, um, what do you think are some of the most important takeaways from the term? So, you know, I think a lot of this term was sort of setting the stage for the terms to come. Uh, you know, the buzz around sort of the Supreme Court bar in D.C. was at the court, and particularly the Chief Justice really wanted a quiet term. There's been a lot of attention, negative attention, focused on the court in recent years, and they just really wanted a, more, a quieter term. And I, and I think they basically got that. I mean, it, you know, as always, the last day has some bangs um, with the gerrymandering and the census cases in this, you know, this year. But um, there was a lot of sort of... Um, setting the stage for things to come. And so, for example, there was a case called Gundy about the non-delegation doctrine, which is a, um, implicates you know, how much power administrative agencies can have in the executive branch. Uh, and, and no new ground was broken in that case, but a lot of the justices said, look, we're, we're up for reconsidering this doctrine in a future case um, where we can really rein in the administrative state. And that's sort of been um, a real sort of favorite topic for people like Justice Kavanaugh. Um, as I said, there was a lot of sort of um, setting the stage for talking about stare decisis, just Thomas had a concurring opinion in, in one case this week where uh, he said, look, I, I think stare decisis, we should only stick with old decisions if they're correct. That's my view of stare decisis. And that's certainly going to come up again in the next couple of years. Yeah, another example of that phenomenon of setting the table is that the court suggested in a couple of cases 
uh, a willingness to reconsider the hugely important Chevron doctrine that agencies get to implement statutes authoritatively. And if they were to revisit that, that would be a humongous deal. I thought that this was a term with some, you know, a few aggressive things, partisan gerrymandering being the biggest example, but a kind of slow pace with respect to others. You know, you do have this moderate result at the present time in the census case. The peace cost cross decision is written pretty narrowly. We also saw, you know, a, a the court turning away issues that might have been highly controversial. So they have stayed away with substantive abortion questions, for example. But next term, uh, we do have a substantive Second Amendment case out of the state of New York. We have cases on the employment protections for LGBTQ individuals, uh, which could end up being very significant. We have the Dreamers in DACA, which the court agreed to hear today. And we have the other religion case about the tax credits for schools. And so that sounds like the kind of handful of uh, significant issues that the justices are, are looking for each term. And, you know, the, uh, the, the left is pretty happy to kind of keep it to a handful. Uh, and the chief justice thinks that's, I, I would imagine, uh, thinks that that's probably about the, the right number. And maybe some of his more conservative colleagues would like to take up even more. Um, but I think we'll see that trend continue where the chief justice is uh, concerned about how the court is understood, doesn't want it to be viewed as a really partisan institution, uh, doesn't want it to be viewed as having a political agenda. Uh, and he probably is pretty happy uh, with the abstract notion that there are cases where five, it's five to four and he and three other conservatives are on the losing end because one of the conservatives switched sides. Uh, you had a set of five four cases, uh, obviously with the five more conservative members, an example of that uh, is partisan gerrymandering, but you had an equal number of cases where you did have four of the liberals and one of the conservatives came over. Justice Gorsuch did that four times, for example. The Chief Justice did it, Justice Kavanaugh did it, Justice Alito did it in this uh, odd kind of non-delegation -dele context. Um, and that gives the public the impression that you know the court is you know not moving in lockstep, that five members of the court haven't just kind of seized hold. Yeah, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts does seem to be going to great lengths to protect the image of the court. Um, do you think things like Justice Kagan's impassioned dissent in Rucho and, and other things that we've seen this term make, make that harder to accomplish? I mean, it, you know, it might affect sort of their working relationship on the court. It's hard to know that. Um, and I do think uh, on a, such a political issue as, as partisan gerrymandering, um, it's hard not to view whatever they're going to do as political because it is inevitably going to benefit some political actors and not others, even though, as Tom said, both parties have engaged in political gerrymandering. I think it's widely viewed as more of a GOP tool than a Democratic tool so far. Um, so, uh, I'm, you know, I think Justice Kagan's dissent uh, it was it was very strongly worded, unusually so for her, I think. Um, and so I think that certainly fans some of the flames of people thinking that the court is more political than it ought to be. Yeah, I mean, the court is in the middle of political issues. So and one side's going to win and one side's going to lose. And so there's an inevitability to the dissenter saying, you know, this is a, a, a political outcome. Uh, uh, they can't win in that respect. I will say that the court is a very well-functioning institution um, that I think for by all appearances, the Chief Justice and Justice Kagan and the other members of the court have a very good, strong working relationship. There was some question when you know, Brett Kavanaugh came in, whether the you know his experience in the confirmation process and how that was viewed 
would have some effect on him. There was no evidence of that being true. He was in the majority more than any other member of the court. He got a very important assignment from Justice Ginsburg with the left in a big antitrust case. He got a big important assignment from the Chief Justice in a jury case in which he uh, found a Batson violation, that is that the jury was improperly selected. Uh, so he uh, seemed to have fit right in. Um, and so people shouldn't confuse the fact that you do get these strongly worded dissents, although nothing like you know, the late Justice Scalia, who famously would yeah. say things like, I wouldn't, I would rather put a paper bag over my head than join that majority. Right. Um, you know, the, they, they are, and while Justice Kagan is an incredible writer, uh, nonetheless aren't trying to tear the institution down. I think that the, the left realizes kind of its role now is to kind of slow walk things. And uh, the, the majority isn't trying to steamroll them. And uh, that's going to be the status quo for a while. And, you know, unless we had some other surprise, probably for decades. We have uh, one last question from uh, Mark Verbitsky. He asked, what sleeper cases should be on our radar for next term? And use an example, Gundy last year didn't get a lot of attention, but it could have been a big deal. I don't know. I mean, Sarah and I would say, well, our cases, of yeah. course. <laughs> of course. Great maritime case. Yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> Sarah has a very important criminal case from Kansas. Um, you know, what is it? It's very often hard to predict what's going to blow up. I think that, you know, Gundy didn't get a lot of attention outside lawyers, but among lawyers, it was, you know, once they said, we're going to take up a non delegation case when the court hadn't struck something down on non delegation doctrine in 70 years, it actually did get you know, was in lights. I would say probably the Second Amendment case. You know, the law in that case, a couple of things about it. So it's a New York state law about whether you can take your gun outside of New York City. Um, and, uh, you know, the, 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 that law is actually um, in the process of being repealed in an attempt to moot the case out to stop the Supreme Court from getting to rule uh, because it was upheld below. But even though that's a weird law and not that huge a deal, it would be the first time that the Supreme Court really spoke substantively uh, about what it is that the what kind of protections there are uh, under the Second Amendment, and will be the first time they've done it in the wake of Justice Kennedy's departure, of course. And by all accounts, he was the limiting justice for Heller, uh, so that the court really didn't say much about what the legal protections were uh, under the Second Amendment. And the court, while Justice Kennedy was on the court, stayed away from the Second Amendment. Everybody, I think, was probably afraid of what he would do on both sides. But the court really has the first opportunity now to, you know, say something significant about the Second Amendment as a, as a serious right, which will have implications for must carry, for the size of magazines, uh, and uh, uh, the, um, sorry, the, the, the concealed carry, not must carry, concealed carry, uh, and all kinds of restrictions that exist in a lot of cities and states. And I'd say it'll be interesting to watch the criminal docket to see more about how Justice Gorsuch uh, plays out in criminal cases. You know, I think people's sort of traditional view, as I mentioned, is that the conservatives tend to side with government, which is almost always true of someone like Justice Alito, and the more liberals tend to side with criminal defendants. But Justice Gorsuch has shown himself to be um, different in that regard. Uh, there are, Tom mentioned this Fourth Amendment case that I have, there are, there are several uh, in fact, three cases out of Kansas, criminal cases, but several um, criminal cases on the docket. So it'll be interesting, interesting to see what Justice Gorsuch does in those cases. Well, thanks to you both. Um, it was really, truly a pleasure and an honor to host this conversation. Um, a few final notes before folks leave. Um, we're going to circulate the recording of the session by email. We'll also follow up by email about um, the availability of CLE credit for the session. 
Um, and then just a last note, um, my company, KSEC, is really thrilled to partner with SCOTUS Blog and Tom and Sarah. Um, if you're not familiar with us, um, KSEC provides free access to cases, statutes, regulations, rules, and other legal materials to lawyers and the public, um, along with advanced legal research technology um, to some of the country's best litigators. Um, we're committed to helping attorneys do their best work for their clients by making it easier, faster, and more affordable to find the best precedent for your case. Um, if you are interested in learning more, please contact my team at contact.ksex.com or go to ksex.com to learn more and to sign up for uh, free access for a period of time. Um, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Sarah. I really wish that we could have had this conversation for the next five hours, and I might ask you offline to just join me for the rest of the day to talk. Um, thanks to everyone for joining us, um, and I think we'll see you next year.